Hi, I'm Sharad Fitton and welcome to the Georgetown Literary Festival 2021. Today we're going to be talking about literacy and cosmopolitanism in the era of crisis. And our guest is Dr. Wiki Bing. He is the executive director of the Penang Institute and member of many Penang state government committees. He's an award-winning author and has lectured at various universities in Sweden, Hong Kong, Singapore, and of course our very own Malaysia. He has been in think tank work for two decades, and his key interests are in history, language philosophy, and political science. Having been found the editor of various publications, such as Singapore's ISIS Perspective and uh, Penang Monthly, perceives post-colonial education to be lacking in liberation impulses, and post-colonial language used to, uh, used to be lacking in philosophical ambitions. Now, uh, the topic for today is uh, literacy and cosmopolitanism. As I mentioned, uh, Penang, of course, is the home of the Georgetown Literary Festival and the cosmopolitan culture it has long hosted. Over the centuries, its people and cultures have been buffeted by global political conflict, social dislocation, and technological advancement, for better or worse. In this conversation with the director of the Penang Institute, we explore if assumptions underpinning the island's cosmopolitan impulses have been permanently disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Kibing, what do you say? Is this disruption permanent? Is it just about um, tourism or uh, seems how global supply chains continue? Uh, what is at stake in the discussion of Penang's uh, cosmopolitanism in the era of COVID-19? Uh, okay. Well, I, I would, I suppose what we are doing here is to problematize the, the, the term literacy, I think, right? Um, and I think we're we talking about literacy during a time of crisis and all that. But I tend to think that uh, the end of colonialism and the starting of the new nation of Malaysia, uh, there were periods of crisis as well, right? And I think we went straight into nation building in its very formalistic forms, meaning education in a certain way. Uh, we have the national schools, and then we had a lot of trouble deciding what languages to use and what languages to not use and uh, giving different status to different languages. And I think all that are signs of a, a rather chaotic situation. I also tend to think that as, as countries get going, be it Malaysia or Singapore and, or many other countries, um, they tend to think of national schooling as a, in its functional sense. So a lot of our literacy, the literacy that were given to our young, young Malaysians and, and other citizens um, were always very functional. And I think functional literacy will, uh, well, lead to functional, well, functional education will lead to functional literacy. And if it happens across the board, that more citizens in one country starts to be functionally um, educated, then the literacy is bound to be rather technical. And especially in a country like Malaysia that has a lot of languages and cultures put together, you're bound to have literacy being being um, diluted, if you like, uh, into a market kind of, of language use. And that, that, that works well. Generally, that works well. And it's 
usually also part of the charm of a country like Malaysia, that we, we use a lot of languages at street level kind of language. And so we have Pasar Melayu, Pasar English, and so on and so forth, market language as well, which is, which is all fine. But that needs to be balanced by, a over time, a, a literacy that is more serious, that is more meant for, for thinking rather than for mere economic functions or professional functions. Yeah. Um, so the last 60, 70 years of Malaysian life, we have seen a lot of urbanization and the cosmopolitanism that had existed from before, especially in a town like, like Penang, uh, that also got dragged into the national agenda. Um, and a lot of mobility of people. In the case of Penang, we, we've always had a brain drain since the 1970s. So all in all, a rather chaotic situation, if you, if you ask me. Um, and, so uh, can, you ask, can I ask you, Kibing, uh, you know, you draw a rather broad picture of um, a national education and the Malaysian scene. Uh, and we're trying to locate Penang within it. Were there um, attempts to uh, kind of preserve Penang's uniqueness, uh, especially in the, in the schooling system? I mean, how varied uh, uh, is schooling in Penang? Um, what other non-state institutions are there that might have kept various languages alive, various uh, literary traditions alive, mm. uh, uh, cultural traditions? Is, is, was the power of the state so, and the nationalist agenda so flattening, so successful in flattening out the, flattening out, uh, the cultural impulses of a space like Penang? Mm. Uh, good question. I think the National Education Project, of course, is to, in some ways, standardize and flatten, as you say. Um, but I don't think they, they were very effective in that. Well, I would, some would say that that's only good. Um, but in the case of Malaysia, of Penang, uh, which from the beginning had a very diverse education system, you had all the all the school systems that were based on different cultures, right? So you have the the missionary schools, you have the Penang Free School, which is more of a, a secular system started out locally. You would have the Muslim schools, you would have the Chinese schools and whatnot, right? And then with, with independence, you suddenly had the national school system, which tried to subsume uh, all these schools into a national system. And we ended up with national type schools. Um, and then... Um, and I think with the coming of the NEP and the the the, the uh, Malayization, if you like, of a lot of things, you 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 could see how the how changes came to certain schools. One good example is that uh, in the seventies, in the sixties, seventies, the best school, uh, r rather clearly to everyone, was the Penang Free School, um, and today it's no longer that. It no longer has that status, right? That status has now moved on to, to the Chinese language schools. Um, so it's, it's it's a sort of adaptation by a cosmopolitan society to national ambitions. Um, so it, it's not a matter of whether one feels or not, but it's it's a more complex situation of different wills, you know, uh, going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, uh, I just am reminded of what we did in uh, 2019, which was to highlight uh, Mahwa literature 
which, you know, I think uh, a lot of Malaysians who uh, don't read in Mandarin uh, probably unaware of, and we try to, uh, to, to give it some, um, uh, some prominence in the festival. Uh, but uh, I, I want to ask you if we could maybe deal with the, the very notion of cosmopolitanism, since it's, mm. it isn't necessarily a project, is it? I mean, it's now used uh, as a way of branding cities. It's, there's a certain cachet associated, especially by a certain class. Of course, uh, right-wingers across the world hate cosmopolitanism. So there's, maybe there's a unity in, in you know, right-wing uh, hatred of cosmopolitanism. Mm -hmm. But in the Malaysian context, in the Penang context, what is, what's at stake when we talk about cosmopolitanism? Uh, well, I, well, I would think that cosmopolitanism, if we use that term to describe Penang society, it's, it's a result of partly colonialism, but it's also an economic uh, um, creation in a way. Um, and when we say cosmopolitanism, in, in my experience, having been to certain areas in the world, there are different types of cosmopolitanism, right? You you have it depends on how the what the mix of peoples and cultures is like. So if you go to Istanbul, you might say it's cosmopolitan, but it's Turkic based, right? Uh, if you go to London, of course, you have an Anglo-Saxon cosmopolitanism, like in New York and and whatnot. You go to Shanghai, you get something else. Um, so when we use that word, do we mean to say the same thing about all of them? Of course, there are certain commonalities like uh, like the diversity of, of of things, but I think what what sometimes causes chaos in a nation building context is that we tend to see cosmopolitanism as a problem because nationalism likes to simplify things, likes to regiment, like to unify, to use the the, the positive term for it, but is basically to to make things as similar. As, as possible. Uh, I think that that is a mistake. I think that's a mistake that most nation builders do. You don't need unity. You don't need conformity. You just need to have sufficient commonality. And you actually need diversity. You need so social fringes in order for a society to be vibrant and to be creative and innovative. So the nation building project tends to overreach. Um, too much talk about unity when why do we want so much unity? We just don't want people to be violent against each other. We just want people to, to get along, uh, even if it's in, like, in the style of being in a market. Uh, but this push to, for unity, I think, is, is a big mistake. Um, but it seems to be part of the... It came in the package. When you become a nation-state, these are the things you have to tick off, you know? And so... So people go around doing that. And it's hard to argue uh, publicly against that, usually, I think. You, you just throw in the word universe, unity, and then people agree, yes, we want unity. Uh, but as long as you leave me alone. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think diversity and unity don't contradict each other. It's, uh, they only contradict each other when you try to um, force things and, that, and you forget time. Cosmopolitanism, any type, builds up over time. Unity builds up over time. And I think when once you have a nation-building project, you start, you forget time. You want things, you know, you, you do five-year five developmental programs, as it were. 
and things have to happen somehow at a rate that you you pretend that you decide from the top down. Uh, but society doesn't work like that, especially uh, diverse societies, uh, societies with, with a lot of diversity, like Penang or Malaysia in general. Okay, so let, let, let's uh, take this uh, kind of, as it were, one step at a time. And I, I, I want to ask you about um, the way in which perhaps cosmopolitanism, uh, especially as it um, appears in Penang, in the built structures, you know, in the architecture, in, in, in the social fabric, has been commoditized. It's commoditized by the same nationalist state that recognizes its value, uh, at, 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 it's even almost in some sense a business proposition to the world. Come visit us, mm. see this diversity. It's a neatly packaged diversity. Yeah. Is that the cosmopolitanism that in some sense really exists today? It is commodified, packaged for tourists, mm. Mm. and is that what is in danger at this point in time? Um, very good question, actually. Uh, many many layers to, to ponder and explore. Uh, the commodifying, the, as you put it, is also a freezing. So I, I would, would also look at this as a freezing of culture. You, you turn things into items for the museum, as you were for sightseeing, in a way. But luckily, that's not the whole story, right? Because culture cannot be frozen, right? Uh, it might look that it get, like it gets frozen now and then, but uh, culture seen as, you know, every new generation is going to have its, its own tweaking of whatever it inherited. Uh, so the freezing of it would be possible only in certain aspects. In the Penang sense, I suppose you're thinking of tourism and uh, Perhaps the UNESCO itself, the UNESCO listing itself, has a certain danger to it in that it, it's also about freezing the past, right? Um, which, which I think is, is your, your question's point. Uh, but I think um, economics does not allow that, uh, especially now with digitalization and whatnot. I think the next generation is going to see so many, many, many changes. Uh, and that I think in... In 10 years' time, people from, of my generation are going to feel really alienated. Uh, so there are, there are lots of things that are in change, but we somehow don't always call them culture. We also do seem to think that culture has something to do with a frozenness as well. And I think that might be a wrong interpretation of what culture is supposed to be. Uh, it, it's everything. It's the past and the, and the present and so on and so forth. Um, cosmopolitanism is... It's always in flux, right? Because it's too, it, it does signify complicated relationships. It's, it's a meeting of civilizations, and by that, you know that you're not really going to understand each other very well. And what has happened in Penang, what is, what is great about Penang is that we do have all these cultures, and uh, we get along fine. We're totally fine. And it's sort of because we seem to know where we don't go further, right? I don't need to, as a Chinese in Penang, I don't need to be uh, very well versed in the culture of a Tamil or the culture of a Malay. Uh, we sort of allow for time and opportunities in order to get along with each other. There should not be a political timeline put in. You know, uh, I think that usually works against cosmopolitanism and turns it into turns it into a joke sometimes. Like you say, it, it freezes it, it commodifies it, 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 it kills it. it, it, it but I do, 
I do want to uh, kind of throw in the, the question of hybridity in, into the mix because uh, we see in places like Penang and the mm. Strait Settlement, mm. you know, uh, these colonial outposts, uh, or, you know, um, in fact, a melding of cultures. And so we think of Penang, we also think of Peranakanka. We think, uh, and if you, if you maybe a little more studied about this, you might even think of Jawi Peranakan, the kind of Tamil yes, Malay mix yes, as well, right? Yes. So, okay, so, so we have that. And I appreciate what you're saying about the nature of Cosmo. It's not, Cosmo is not a project as such. I mean, it is, it is just the, the existence of certain dynamics. Right. Now, where, how do we bring in the question of literacy? Can, that's what you started off with, this idea that the, the national uh, you know, sort of uh, education agenda in the context of Malaysia has been to create, in some ways, a kind of functional literacy. Mm. Now, what is, what is not, as it were, what is the opposite of functional literacy? What is it that you are kind of alluding to mm-hmm. as, as something more genuine or something deeper or something more dynamic mm-hmm. in terms of literacy? Mm. Uh, how shall I approach it? Let, let's say we take the, this concept of uh, the bangsa bubble that people like to talk about where KL is concerned. Um, we don't only have the bangsa bubble. I think we have, do have a lot of bubbles, right? Um, what, what I would like for Penang and for Malaysia really is that I, I think... We mustn't forget that literacy isn't a goal in it. Well, it's literacy is not just functional literacy. It's meant for thinking, right? If we connect that to thinking. I, I tend to think that um, when I feel that I have mastered the language, then I suddenly find that I can joke in it with that language. I can coin phrases. I need to coin phrases. Even as, as I think as soon as you are good at a language, you start coining phrases in that language. You get poetic. Um, and I think that, so literacy has different levels. You know, uh, you could have functional literacy that is meant to, for you to function in, in a profession or you, you'd learn the lingo, the parlance of a certain profession, you know, the models and so on. Or if you're a hawker, you know, know the language and, and whatnot. But I think for a society, for an for a nation to grow, you need you need to have a rather good ecosphere of high literacy. Uh, and I think because Malaysia has always had trouble with deciding what languages should be used, we have uh, sort of shot ourselves in the foot where that development is concerned. Uh, we've spent too much time and energy on on formal uses of language. Uh, which language should be used when and you know uh, instead of thinking of language as a as a, a functional thing for thinking to go beyond merely merely economic uh, matters um, and i think a literary festival i i remember when this was started uh, over a decade ago that was sort of the idea i, I was slum- somewhat involved in the discussion from the beginning it was about Literacy as something more than being able to read, right? It's about going, pushing the boundaries of thinking um, of, of our local context. Yeah, um, and I, yeah I mean, there, there is this really, uh, you know, kind of um, troubling phenomena of, of schools that are set up as London English or, you know, or the proliferation of something called business English. And I, I think it's all, you know, as, as a child of an English teacher, 
I must say, I find this all very scary and 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 uh, troubling. Uh, and and so so what is it that so what is it that uh, happens when we go beyond, say, literature as again, you know, question of um, an extension of ethnic pride. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that happening in Malaysia yes, as yes. well, I guess. Yes. Right. So the, the so how do we bring in the question of literacy, cosmopolitanism, hybridity, language mix? Um, what are the possibilities? If we will think, speculate a little bit about Penang's future, because I think the session, you know, kind of wants us to think about the future, about whether cosmopolitanism is disrupted by COVID. Uh, has, is there any connection with COVID at all? Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see it all going? Mm. Another good question, Sharon. Really, um, one one thing I fear about COVID and COVID being protracted, and it we don't know how long is this is going to last really throughout the world. Uh, it it encourages it encourages parochialism. It encourages protectionism. It encourages a certain isolationism, and at the political level, it encourages authoritarianism. We we can all sense that, right? And we are somehow still positive that all this will pass, and then we're back to, you know, normal, uh, in in those contexts. Um, but we don't we don't know that for sure. Um, and of course, cosmopolitanism is only possible where mobility has been allowed. And so, in the case of Penang, that was that came into being once the British came in, and because their their mode of of developing Penang was rather economic, if you like, you know, free trade and all that. And so a lot of people quickly moved into Penang. So Penang's population grew actually very, very quickly. So it is this mobility of people, uh, the welcoming of people, uh, and then a certain laser fairness, if you like, over, over the com- economics so that it's, you know, it's pioneer territory in some sense. And so no peoples were actually kept out. If you wanted to come, you came. So that's why immediately we had Burmese, we have Thais, we have Chinese, we have Bengalis, we have Sumatrans, Achinese, and um, even even other peoples who were who whom we today see as clearly Malaysians who had, you know, Eurasians in Phuket very quickly came down to to Penang, for example. Um, so it was that kind of loose. Governance that allowed for 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 uh, that kind of population to come into being, but like with everything else underneath all that, there must be an economic reason for it. And I think that that the British managed to get going because what they were doing were you know going to ports not only for defense reasons but in order to secure trade routes and so on and so forth. And so places like Hong Kong, Singapore. Penang, they all had that chance to become cosmopolitan by default, practically, because that was the name of the game, in, in a way. And also, all these places, as we see, are really as far away from England as you can get. Uh, and so, so their way of controlling these places would have been very different from how they would control Malta or you know, places close to England. So that allowed for a very loose, indirect way of governing. Uh, so where economics were concerned, it was laser fair. Where governance was concerned, it was rather liberal, if you like, rather loose, very weak government, and and so on and so forth. And that I think allowed for for what we see that is Penang. 
Um, Kiming, I, w- I want to ask you about, um, you know, w- w- the, m- the kind of lay capitalists or contemporary capitalist uh, arrangements globally, right? So uh, people talk about various uh, forms of globalization. On one hand, we have these global supply chains that link Penang to the rest of the world in the, com- in the making and the manufacturing of goods, but it doesn't necessarily uh, go along with the movement of people, right? So you, the movement of people is highly regulated. Yeah. The movement of goods is increasingly, um, you know, caught within very liberal frameworks. So the, we're trying to constantly to allow goods to move freely, constantly trying to stop people from coming in. And this yeah. paradox, uh, laid on top of it, the cherry of the icing is that the elite want to live a cosmopolitan life. So they want to travel and experience difference uh, across the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so a literary festival in some ways is another node in an elite um, a circuit of people, you know, uh, in, in the forms of globalization that we have now. Where should Penang, or how should Penang think this through? It seems that does Penang just want to play the game of pandering to the global elite, or do they want to do something different? Mm. I, I suppose where mobility of people is concerned, once you had the nation-state model put into place after the war, so in this part of the world, well, Indonesia was independent by 45, 1950, and then you know all the rest came. The nation-state itself is... is uh, an inhibitor of move, movement of people, right? So you're right in that, and, and this is a big big issue in economics, I think, where you today, capitalism, late capitalism, as you call it, uh, it's, it, it tries to maximize uh, movement of goods, movement of capital as fast as possible, but not people, right? Um, and of course, nation states do with the passport and, and immigration control try to try to limit that. Um, and uh, but it doesn't really. I mean, it leaks through. In the end, you still need people to move, and so we have our our foreign labor. Uh, we have millions, right? And in in COVID, I think that turned out to be a problem because we we had not really had control over the population. We know that many are actually illegals. Um, so we we have that economic problem in Southeast Asia of uh, officially uh, controlling the movement of people, but um, encouraging movement of capital and so on and so forth. And yet we want tourism, right? Uh, so, so, it's a, so it's a controlled, controlled movement of people uh, for short periods of time. And I always thought that it was interesting if one look at it as a development in capitalism, that um, the movement, the, the, how we use foreign workers in Southeast Asia is that we essentially... Um, are importing essentialized labor. We, we bring in the Bangladeshis, they are to keep their family at home and they are to come as young men, work on a two-year contract, and then as they wore themselves out, then we change to younger younger laborers and so forth. So cynically, if one looks at it in a more Marxian fashion, uh, we, we, have, we are using labor only as labor, not even as people. Just they, they people come, they, they stay in their dormitories, they come out and work during certain hours, they go back, and then after two years they've earned more than they thought they would have earned back home, and then they go back, and then we get a new supply. 
Um, that's late capitalism as well, where labor is concerned. Um, but with COVID, I think all yeah. governments have to rethink that. Right. And because with labor, as we know through history, is they brought culture with them, didn't they? I mean, in many countries of the world, I mean, great cities, it's food. I mean, food, the cuisine of, of, of migrants can become uh, an essential part of the social fabric. And, you know, I, I don't know if Malaysia is going to learn from COVID uh, how Singapore, what Singapore has done, which is to put, um, you know, over 300,000 people in, you know, foreign laborers in dormitories. Uh, you know, it's in this kind of cordon sanitaire, mm, mm, uh, mm, protecting mm. Singapore from the, you know, the influences of the foreign migrants. But it's a fascinating discussion. I think it can go on for a long time, uh, but we're running out of time keeping. So I, okay. I, I thought of in the in the last two minutes that we have, if we can come back to the question of literacy and, and how would you like to see Malaysians read? Mm. Um, you know, what do you think? I mean, to the extent that there are festivals, to the extent that people can, you know, um, access libraries and stuff, what should we, what, how should they approach reading in terms of the essence of cosmopolitanism? Mm, mm. I, I think one should, they should look forward instead of backwards. I think that there's more cos- cosmopolitanism coming and with the digitalization, I think we're going to get more of that. Um, well, you know, we, we are living in a new world, really. The internet is not all that old. Our mobile phone is only 10, 12 years old, and we are totally addicted to it. Uh, a lot of our information comes through that. And uh, so it's a, well, we do get information from all over the place. We just choose our information. So it's a, in some sense, one could say that you choose your cosmopolitanism or your literacy even at the moment. Um, so we, in that sense, we go into a virtual world, a virtual cosmopolitanism. But I, I, I tend to think that the digital, the digital pre-requires the analog, right? And the analog, analog always precedes the digital. So I do think that during the last two years now, when we're all having to zoom and talk to each other through, through looking on a screen like we are doing now, um, it's it's okay for a while. I think we still want, we still long for the the information that physical, that the body language and and the physical person actually can give us. I I think let's say looking at you now, I've, I've met you many times before. I don't I don't see the whole charade, you know. I don't I don't see your whole movement. I don't see the 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 niceties of your smile. It's a flattened smile I see on the screen. And so I don't think humans will be satisfied with this. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know if I've I'm, I've answered your question in in that sense, but um, I think literacy it's it, it's a new world again. The we are all creating our own portal for information, aren't we? Yours will be somewhat different from mine, and so on. We can't help that because there's there's just too much. Um, but literacy, I think it's important. I think it's important that our children, uh, get it into their head that they must try to master a language. It's not enough to just be functional in it. There is a lot, a lot more to be gained from knowing a language very, very, very well. Uh, and so lit- literacy is tied to literature, I think, right? So in certain in certain cultures, you have a very strong history of, of literature. And so that is there for you to, to, to explore and so on. Um, and of course, we live in modern times, so perhaps certain literature looks 
old and, and can't give us very much. Um, but I, well, in the case of Penang, if I may end with that, we a few years ago, we thought we had to start the Penang, Mag- Penang Monthly, the Penang Magazine. And, and perhaps that is right in the center of, of what, what you're asking me, Sharad. Um, we, we wanted the magazine to express, to be a platform for all sorts of people who like Penang or who live in Penang to be able to, to write to us in, for the magazine on any aspect of Penang life. Because we thought that kind of platform was, was missing. Most platforms for literature tend to be rather highbrow or, or their books, they take forever to just get a simple article out about a place. And the national newspapers don't give you that space. Uh, and of course, blogs do sort of give that space. And we thought a magazine, a printed magazine for a town like a city, a small city like Penang would be perfect. And I think we've, we've done well in that that magazine is still around after 12 years. It's free and it's now online. And it's a platform for Penang people to talk about themselves. And so the literacy, the literature that grows out of that would be from them, as it were. That, that's one way to, 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 to develop how we, how we describe ourselves and our surroundings and our own neighbours and people. You know. Thank you, Kibing. I mean, clearly, this is a, uh, a topic that requires more than just yes. a half an hour podcast. Yes. So, you know, I look forward to the time when the festival is back, uh, hybrid or not hybrid, and we can have these conversations in person. Uh, but thank you very much thank for you. spending thank time you. with us this afternoon. And um, yeah, I, like I said, I look forward to uh, seeing you in person in Penang. Yeah, okay. Thank okay. you very much. That was Dr. Dr. Wiki Beng, is executive director of the Penang Institute. I'm Sharad Putin. Please uh, visit the GTLF 2021 Spotify page to listen to other sessions, all available. Um, and that's been uh, that's a wrap for. And I again, uh, welcome to the Georgetown Literary Festival 2021.